I'm David Rowan. Welcome to Voyager's Journeys, where we meet the amazing people in the Voyager's community working on impact-led projects. This week, I've been for a walk in London's Regent's Park with Jeevan Nagaraja of Better Dairy, making dairy products without involving any actual cows. We're already starting to take these proteins from a hypothetical thing and actually make them into mozzarella formulations and look at ice cream applications. And we're going to start tasting them and really getting that sensory thing. Today, we're going to hear from Jeevan Nagaraja at Better Dairy, a company in London working on what's called precision fermentation. In other words, finding ways to make molecularly identical products to traditional dairy, milk and cheese without using animals. Welcome, Jeevan. Hey David, it's great to be here. Was that a fair explanation of what precision fermentation is? Yeah, so I think that's a very fair reflection. Fermentation is a technology platform that we're utilizing. In essence, really what we're trying to do is create products that people love and enjoy, like cheese, like milk, and remove animals entirely from the equation. And so by using fermentation, we follow a process more similar to beer brewing, and we leverage it to produce these products. So we've come to see nature as we have our conversation. We're in Regent's Park in London at the moment. So you're a London company. There is a huge amount of money going into food tech, plant-based meats, cultivated protein. Quite a lot of that is happening in the Bay Area, in places like Tel Aviv, in Germany. Tell us where we are in London. As you mentioned, a lot of these companies are being built out in the West Coast and there are hubs in Singapore and Israel that are also pushing you know, the needle forward on the future of food. For us being based in London, there's a lot of exciting things going on here. For example, in London, both my co-founder and myself are alumni of Imperial College. Our labs are actually right down the road from Imperial College's $30 billion campus that they've set up in White City. And so with that, we get access to some of the best researchers, the best facilities, and also the best talent to actually bring into our company. And so that's one of the many reasons why London's a great place for us. It provides us with some great opportunity. Let's start with the problem you're solving. What's wrong with dairy? So dairy is, I guess, it's the gift that keeps on giving in a way. There's a lot of things that are, that are wrong with it. For example, the water usage, it takes anywhere from 600 litres of water to 1,000 litres of water just to produce one litre of milk. And so that's obviously not a great thing. Alongside that, there's a huge environmental aspect of it. Cattle emits five times the global CO2 emissions of the global aviation industry. And so again, that's a big problem that we're hoping to tackle. Dairy, from an environmental standpoint, is a, is a bit of a conundrum. Alongside that, you've obviously got the animal welfare side of things. Obviously, taking calves away from their mothers is ethically questionable, to say the least. And so there's a number of different things that we can really solve for with the kind of products we're bringing to market. We'll talk about your solution, but let's dig down into some of those problems. So excessive water use, that's watering the fields that produce the grass that the cow needs to eat in order to produce the milk. Yeah, so it's a combination of things. It's the water that's used to grow the crops to then feed to the animals. The animals are not the most perfect conversion mechanism from crops to milk. And so there's a lot of wastage going on there. In addition to that, you've got to grow up the animals from young until they get to the age where they can then be milked. And so again, that takes a lot of water, a lot of crops. There's a whole ecosystem around it that just takes a lot of water usage. But we've been coping for a few centuries like this, so why now? 
So I think that there's a number of things. The dairy industry is heavily, heavily subsidized. So it's a little bit of an artificially propped up ecosystem. So I think that that's one thing. Aside from that, I think sustainability in general is starting to become a little bit more prevalent in people's minds. It's something that we actually really need to go and solve for. And so while dairy as a product is not inherently flawed, it's very nutritious, um, it's very delicious, it can be used in a number of different applications, and it obviously culturally resonates with us as humans, there are things that are, are wrong with it which now we can really go and solve for, especially now that sustainability is becoming such a prevalent issue. So the world has increasingly become aware of the urgency of solving the climate problem. People like Bill Gates writing books that start to hammer the message home to people who don't consider themselves activists. Explain how dairy production plays its role. Yeah, so I mean the food ecosystem in general could stand to, to do with an upgrade across the board. There's loads of different aspects to it where you can tighten up loads of inefficiencies. A lot of it's very antiquated. It's an industry that has not had as much radical disruption as many of the other industries that are out there. Meat and dairy are obviously huge, huge things to go after because of their reliance on animal agriculture and animal farming, which creates a lot of this inefficiency and is very resource intensive. We go after dairy for a number of reasons. One, it's a huge product category. As I mentioned, it's heavily entrenched in consumer products, milk proteins, fats and sugars find their way in tens of thousands of products. And so by tackling just dairy, you end up actually disrupting a $700 billion market. And the actual impact that you can have is significant. And the contribution that cattle make to climate change is partly the methane they produce, but I guess it's also partly the land use. So it's, it's, it's a bit of land use. The crops that are fed to them obviously have their own sort of footprint, but the biggest contributor is the actual methane emission. The way that we index it is looking at the CO2 equivalent, and so cattle emits about 1.7 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent into the atmosphere each year. Let's be honest, this is belching and farting. Yeah, <laughs> that, is, that is correct. The process by which the cow's digestive system produces external consequences. Yeah, that's, that's correct. That's, that, that's the main contributor, really. And so people are working on solutions to try and minimise that. But to really fundamentally shift it, we think that taking the cow out of the equation entirely just actually leads us to a much better solution. And you mentioned subsidies. So the market you feel is being skewed by farming receiving money for things that would otherwise not be competitive. Farming is hugely subsidized, especially areas like dairy, and so that then creates these artificial economies where a lot of taxpayer funds are being funneled in to support inherently inefficient process. And it becomes quite difficult to wedge in new technologies to really come and alleviate the problems because of that artificial subsidy. And finally, there's the animal cruelty question, which I guess if you're growing cows for meat, there's a big question mark over the process of killing the cow. But for milk, you're not killing the animal. Yeah. Why so, does cruelty bother you so much? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of things to it, really. All dairy is not created equally, right? You know, you look at all animals, you've got organic or free range, you've got all these different categories. Again, with that sentiment, all dairy is created equally. And so you have some cows that are living in farms in rural places where they're being milked and they're part of the ecosystem, part of the biodiversity. That is less of a problem or less of an animal cruelty piece to really go and try and solve for. 
However, when you look at the wider industry, there's a lot of factory farming going on. There's a lot of cows being cramped up in very, very small spaces. And that's where it becomes a little bit more dubious in terms of the practices and in terms of actually what's going on to actually deliver these large quantities of milk to customers. And so you have anything from separating calves from their parents, putting down calves just to get lactating uh, mothers to be able to produce this milk. But there's a lot of infection, a lot of disease because there's a lot of problems happening with the milking of cows in such a regular interval. There's, there's a reason why blood and pus and all these th terrible things enter into the food and dairy sort of product landscape and it's a bit horrifying for people but when you dive into it you do see that there are small traces of blood and pus and all these things in dairy products it's because of that overuse and that factory farming aspect which while they want to sell a view of cows playing leafly in a field it's just quite far from that in the majority of cases so nobody wants blood and pus in the milk in the fridge if we get organic milk does that make much difference well, I think we can all agree definitely that that's suboptimal sub to say the least. There, there are probably some nutrients in there, but again, like from a product uh, functionality and from a product uh, standpoint, you probably don't want it there. But obviously with organic, you have less. Uh, another thing that we didn't touch on is obviously the antibiotics and that whole side of things that find its way into the food ecosystem. And so obviously by going organic, people are feeding the cows and feeding the animals better quality feedstock, basically. The overall result is still net net that it's not great. So we'll talk in a minute about how, but tell us what you're trying to build. So I think for us, it's really about producing great foods that people love in a sustainable and ethical way. So it all starts off with the food, right? I think the way to make the sustainable choice or the ethical choice is to give people foods that they already just know, love and enjoy. And it happens to be produced in a more sustainable and economical and efficient sort of way. I think you've got to really give people food that they enjoy and that's the main driver of, of buying behavior. And I think that's the way to get the mass market to switch into, I guess, buying foods of this nature and actually making the impactful choice. You know, yes, you could go and tell them about it and great people like Bill Gates are writing books. And I think that that's great. The awareness is obviously growing in the space. However, to make the change, it starts off with good food. And so that's the angle that I come at it from. And what I realized through my journey is there's a lot of these technologies that are now becoming very exciting and are actually getting to the point where we can actually commercialize them and make them into actual realistic solutions. And for me, it's about taking those technologies and now going and, and solving this problem and creating these good foods using these sort of technologies. What are you going to create? We're using fermentation and the way that it works is you can leverage off of fermentation to produce products that are molecularly identical to the originals. What you do is you manipulate uh, your yeast. So in our case, we're using yeast and yeast as the fermentation technology. You manipulate it and instead of producing what it naturally produces, it's now become a factory for you to produce, in our case, milk protein. And what we do with that milk protein is we then take that milk protein and we make it into various dairy products. It can also plug into a number of different food applications. Milk proteins find their way into chicken nuggets, loads of baked goods, cakes, chocolates, you, you name it. And so really starting off with just that protein, it allows us to plug in in such a multifaceted way into the food ecosystem. And do you see yourself as the producer eventually of milk? of cheese, of yogurt, or are you simply going to produce the protein as a raw material? Yeah, so the proteins themselves actually have a lot of functionality. They have a lot of nutrition and uh, they do a lot in their cells. When you have these proteins, if you look at something like cheese, the thing that gives it its melt, its stretch, its gooiness, it's the protein. It's one specific protein called casein. 
And so by having just that, you can already fathom a cheese that is way better than any plant-based cheese that's currently out there because it has the functionality that you want. You want it to melt on a burger, you want it to stretch. It also has very good um, nutritional properties. It's a good source of protein. But to my point earlier, animal protein is not bad inherently as a thing. It's actually a great source of amino acids. It's just a production mechanism. And so with that protein, we can then create these better products. The way that we factor in is we start off with the protein and we are taking our proteins and combining them with plant-based fats, plant-based sugars. And right now our aim is to really produce these products to plug into existing food manufacturers. So let them finish the product and let them bring it to customers. But we focus on this new exciting ingredient and the food science side of kind of bringing this blend to them. How difficult is it? It depends on what your difficulty uh, reference point is. There are some challenges to actually bring it to market. I think there are a number of challenges on the technical side. There are also challenges outside of the technical side, things like regulatory environment and working on the consumer side and making sure that everything's positioned in the right way. Well, let's start with the science. How hard is it to produce casein through yeast fermentation? So, you know, it's been done about 20 years ago in academia. So as an academic principle, it's, it's very doable. I think to do it in the right way that is commercially viable is a whole different question. And so we're fortunate to have put together some really, really solid experts in synthetic biology. And our experts have been working tirelessly since we set up the company in January of last year to really engineer these yeast to produce these proteins. And I'd say we've already had our first you know, prototypes and first MVPs and we've got them off the ground, but there's still some work to do. You want to make sure that what you're producing is obviously safe for consumption. You obviously want to also verify that it is molecularly identical to the original. And you need to make sure again that, that it actually holds its functional properties, its nutritional properties, and is something that is exciting to be used in this sort of application. And so on that side of things, it is difficult, but we're making really, really good headway on cracking that nut and that piece of the equation. After we crack that, we then have to start looking at how we move out of the lab into larger scale environments, which presents its own challenges. But that's an R&D stream that we're building out later this year. And we're going to be bringing on engineers where fortunately, in, when you look at fermentation, the exciting thing is that industrial fermentation has been around for decades, been used in pharmaceuticals, been used to produce enzymes for food production. And so that scaling upside is a challenge. But that piece of the equation, there's a lot of expertise and know-how that we can tap into. That part I was hoping you were going to bring me a little flask with some milk you'd cultivated. <laughs> How far are you from having a product? We, we have our first samples, but they're very much on the lab scale. So unfortunately, there's no, there's no taste test today. Have but you drunk them? I have not, I have not drunk them yet. Uh, despite my best efforts, I've tried to get access to them, but my scientists have kept me at bay for now. But later this year, I think we're already starting to you know, build out our food science team. We're already starting to take these proteins from a hypothetical thing and actually make them into mozzarella formulations and look at ice cream applications. And we're gonna start tasting them and really getting that sensory thing. It's easy to get excited by the science and forget that we're creating a food product that needs to be enjoyed. And so our aim is definitely by later this year to have those first samples to start tasting them ourselves. You can hear the industrial factory grass cutting of Regent's Park just behind us. We're very authentic. <laughs> One of the issues, presumably, is price. This is only going to be viable as a business if your price can be comparable to that of milk or cheese, which is, because it's subsidised, pretty cheap. What's the price at the moment? to produce the equivalent of a litre's worth of casein? 
Yeah, so casein currently is more on the sort of powdered form and uh, it's used extensively as a food ingredient. It's a $3.4 billion market in itself. So this just shows you the scale of dairy. All these little small proteins are billion dollar markets in their own right. And so to produce casein uh, for wholesale, it's about six pounds per kilogram currently. And this fluctuates wildly because of the dairy prices, weather actually plays a massive part. So it's a bit of a turbulent market, but roughly speaking, six pounds per kilo. And how much is it costing you at the moment? Have you got a graph showing a huge price gradually falling down towards six? Yeah, so for us, obviously our dream and our mission is to really disrupt wholesale casein and, and disrupt the wholesale market. Right now, the implied pricing of our product is in the hundreds of pounds per kilo. And so over time, the idea is to really drive down the unit economics to get it to a point where we can compete with wholesale casein. I think the fortunate thing is, there's a couple of exciting things there. One, there's actually a more premium market that we can go after and that can subsist us for a while. While the dream is to disrupt casein, there's still a lot of exciting things happening on the plant-based side. There's a lot of premium applications which we can tap into. But yes, the view is definitely to drive down the unit economics to get it there. You don't just want a futuristic approach that's exciting, that never really sees the light of day because the economics just don't work. And on that side of things, we're working very extensively on that. My co-founder, Chris, is actually an expert across natural sciences, but also machine learning. And so what we're doing while we're building this overarching, exciting fermentation platform, we also have the unit economics that we need to achieve in the future in mind. And he's building out some really exciting smart data usages and bioinformatics and machine learning techniques that will allow us over time to really tighten up as many inefficiencies as we can in our process to really drive down these unit economics and get us to this point of disrupting casein. But it is a competitive market. There are other companies trying to disrupt dairy. There's everything from Perfect Day in the US, Remilk in Israel. What makes you think Better Dairy has the chance of winning? Yeah, so it's a hugely exciting space. And I've got to say, a lot of the companies out there are pioneers in their own right, and they're doing great work. I've spent a lot of time in tech. You usually find people fighting against each other or a bit more secretive. In this industry, everybody's very supportive. They're all pioneers in their own right. When you look at the market that we're going to disrupt, it's a $700 billion market. It's going to be years, maybe decades, before we even start competing with each other, given the crazy scale of dairy, the amount of products, the amount of verticals. And so for us, I think we welcome more people coming to the space. Someone like Perfect Day that has raised $300 million cumulatively to date just shows actually that the technology is ready to kind of get to market. And so I think it's very exciting in general being one of the players in this space. And I think that there's definitely room for more players. Over time, you're going to see people starting to segment off into specific areas. It's just because this is new and this is the beginning of the internet, as it were, in our space. And so everyone's an internet company. But over time, we'll start segmenting. People will become specialists in milk or in cheese or a different type of cheese. There'll be some people going into B2B, some into B2C. And so again, like I don't see that really being an issue, given the fact that there's relatively few competitors when you really look at the landscape. For us in particular, we're focused on B2B, which is a, a, you know, a strategic decision at the moment. And alongside that, a lot of our machine learning techniques, a lot of the inefficiencies that we're tightening up are also unique to us. And so over time, we build out like a great sort of Rolodex of know-how and understandings of all these little things that we can tweak to get it there. Um, I love the idea of a future-facing synthetic biology company having a Rolodex. It's like the equivalent of having a fax machine in the, in the lab. What is it you can protect? What is the IP 
that will create value in the company because presumably other people can go into a lab and copy similar processes. Yeah, so without going into tremendous uh, detail, I mean, there's a lot of different things. With what we're doing, there's a lot of new sciences that are being refined and brought together. And while everybody on the face of it will be doing the same thing, everybody's going to be inventing some new interesting angles for their specific way of piecing together all these different technologies. And so there's areas in synthetic biology where we've already developed actually our own paintable efficiencies, which really are going to allow us to drive forward those unit economics as I mentioned. Alongside that, there's areas of food science, there's areas of the engineering side, again, where we are actually inventing new formulations, new ways of creating dairy that casein is central to, but we've been afforded an opportunity that people in dairy have never had before, right? We have a, a degree of control over the ingredients where we can really, really choose the casein that we want, the proteins that we want. It's an nth degree of control. And so with that, we can actually build new formulations and the new future of food where you can fathom a cheese that's even better at being cheese than cheese. You can look at milk that's better at being milk than milk. And those require uh, new recipes and new formulations and that side of thing to be built on, which again provides us with a lot of know-how and potential patentable outcomes in terms of our product formulation. Now, I'd love, Jeevan, to be able to tell listeners that you started out on a family farm and you got frustrated milking the cows at 4 a.m. Truth is, you started out as a banker. Yeah. Explain how you got from there to here. Well, in my defense, so I, I studied math at Imperial College here in London, and my first job at 18 was in private equity. So it was almost as if I had no choice, really. It was almost predestined that I was going to go into banking. And by virtue of being in London at Imperial College, it just kind of seemed like the right path. Back in 2011, despite the financial crisis, I still felt the calling coming for me. I decided to go into the capital market side for a number of years before realizing that it kind of wasn't exactly for me. It wasn't what I expected. And I also realized it just wasn't as satisfying as I thought it would be. And so I, I left uh, at that time, quarter life crisis at 25, went traveling around Southeast Asia for a bit, find yourself. And I kind of realized that tech was the real thing of our generation. It was the real force multiplier, the way to have impact on the world. And so I came back to London and I got into tech. And I'd say my, my journey through tech has been a winding road on the peripherals of food. It's, it started off in fintech. I was at Rocket Internet and I worked at a company called SumUp, which is very much in financial technology. But over time, I then started moving into food and food technology. I was fortunate to build my own previous startup in the food tech side in the area of cloud kitchens back in 2017, before that was even really a thing. And that really afforded me access to a lot of restaurant groups, a lot of operators, a lot of food manufacturers. And that's where my fascination with food really, really started blossoming. Everybody you know, loves food. I think you, you, you'd be hard pressed to find people on a global level that say, oh no, food's not for me. And so everybody has a bit of a passion for it. But for me at that juncture in my life, I realized I could build a career around it. I could actually get engrossed in it. And it gave me a level of satisfaction that I've never found in any other area of tech or any sort of other career. Did and your so, food startup work? Uh, well, I guess it, it worked in some regard. We got it off the ground. We got some initial funding from Just Eat. I realized uh, in, in, during the process of building that, that I was kind of disaligned with my co-founder in terms of where we wanted to take the company. And I think he's doing a great job with it now and he took it in a different direction. For me, I kind of 
decided to shift away. I wanted to go bigger and I you know, wanted to, to build things in a slightly different direction. And so that then took me down this different path where before I joined sorry, Better, Better Dairy, before I built out Better Dairy, I also joined a North American food tech company, again, getting more engrossed in the ecosystem. I spent a lot of time in North America engrossed in the sort of restaurant operators out there. I then came back to London and helped them launch London and then Berlin, Hamburg and Amsterdam. Again, speaking with a lot of operators and being on the peripheral of, of food manufacturing. And then you found yourself at Entrepreneur First, which is a global but London-based organization that pairs up founders to see if they can create companies. Yeah, that was, that was great. I mean, I had, a, I had a lot of friends who'd gone through the program before. And for me, it was a real pleasure and privilege to go through the program. But very rarely do you have an opportunity to be surrounded by the cutting edge of scientists. You find yourself in a room with 90 people, of which 80 of them are PhDs in anything from rocket science to the cutting edge of synthetic biology to magnetism from CERN. It was a tremendous opportunity. And it was there that I really started to see the opportunities that were presented by synthetic biology, by fermentation. And I, I grappled onto it then, and I, I haven't let go since. And I never realized that I would be able to go and build this company. And it's taken me down a crazy exciting journey. And it all started at, at Entrepreneur First, where the science kind of came, came towards me. And Entrepreneur First works on a founder dating process. They, see if you can pair yourself up with somebody who's got complementary skills. You found your co-founder through the program. Yeah, it's very more akin to uh, you have atoms that are floating around and they collide with each other and they create molecules sometimes. Some of them don't and sometimes they create a molecule and they break up. I spoke with a number of different synthetic biologists while I was on the program, but it was my co-founder Chris that really resonated with me and that I decided to build Better Dairy with. There's a number of reasons why he's a tremendous, tremendous guy on a personal uh, level. He's also hugely talented. To find someone who's an expert in sciences and also in machine learning, he's pretty, pretty, pretty rare. We've got a lot of commonalities. And so while it can sometimes be artificial, just put two people together to build a company. In this case, we both went to Imperial College. We both had the same fundamental values and we've embodied that in our company and in the people that we're hiring now. And so we were fortunate to find each other and have this similar starting disposition while also having complementary skill sets. Did you realize at the time how difficult it would be launching a startup in a regulated space where there was emerging science having to be commercialized? You need to be a bit naive to, to get, get, get into some of these companies. Deep tech companies in general are a very daunting endeavor when you really think about it and the ground that you need to cover. That's one big hurdle, but then you also need to think about the commercial side. And so I think I was a little bit naive, but I think the excitement of it and the impact of what we're building has just carried me through. I, I figured, why not us, right? Like, why, why can't we go and do it? And I, I feel like Entrepreneur First gave me confidence to feel like I could be the kind of person that could build this kind of company. And so far in the last sort of year and a half, I, I'd like to think that we've been doing, you know, some great things and making some right moves. And how big is the team now and how much money have you raised? So we're currently a team of seven, and apart from myself, the rest of the team are very much on the R&D side. So we've got food science, we've got synthetic biology, and we've got bioinformatics, which Chris is leading. And so we've, we've raised 1.6 million pounds as of September last year. We were very, very fortunate to bring in a great consortium of investors, a lot of strategic angels across tech, food, biotechnology, alongside some really, really strong VCs. Our lead investor, Happiness Capital, have a you know, background spanning generations in food manufacturing. And they're obviously at the forefront of the future of food. They've invested in a number of other great companies in the space. And so we're hugely excited to work with them on building this out. 
but they have to be patient investors because you're not going to go to market straight away. You've got to prove the science. Then you've got to go through the whole regulatory process. The exciting thing with fermentation is when you look at it on the grand scheme of sciences that are being developed to, in the future of food, we're actually not the furthest away from commercialization. If you look at Perfect Day, they're already selling their ice cream in the US market. So it shows that the regulatory path is actually there. The technological path is also there and also the commercial alignment is also there. And so while you do need to have an element of patient capital, it's not you know, like a, a SaaS business or it's not going to be like a technology business. I think the real exciting thing and what is drawing a lot of investors to the space is the fact that it's not a 10, 15 year thing. This is a three to five year journey. And so it's a bit patient, but it doesn't have to be tremendously patient. So when will Mayocardo shop supply me with products that Better Dairy has helped make? So I think on Ocado specifically and you enjoying our products, we obviously want to bring it to the UK and Europe as soon as possible. We see ourselves as a global player. And so the real likely first route to market is going to be either in the US market where the regulation is a little bit more in the favor of bringing this kind of technology to, to market, or maybe potentially in a country like Singapore, Israel, who are again making massive strides. I've also heard Canada are making massive strides. So to be honest with you, while my, in my heart, I would love to bring it to the UK first, I think there's still a little bit on the regulatory piece that we need to kind of get through to actually get us there. Having said that, I don't think that it is unfathomable to think sort of three, three, four years from now that it will be coming to the UK market. I, I really don't think that that is something too much of a stretch of the imagination. Exciting. You must get a lot of pushback from the dairy industry, which has a huge lobbying power. They are trying to position these new cultivated, fermented, plant-based foods as inauthentic. How are you going to cope with those sorts of attacks? Yeah, so I think that that's, it's a very good point. Lobbying works you know, through the government, right? And so we're already starting to build very tremendous links with the government to just, I guess, shortcut away from the lobbyists and develop our own relationships there. When you look at like EU mandates and UK mandates for net zero carbon emissions, they have to actually invest in these kind of technologies to hit their own mandates. And so there's a vested interest of the government to actually help us achieve our mission. And so while lobbyists will go against us, the government has an inherent actual motivation to support us. And so that's one thing that we're trying to nurture and obviously build out over time. I'd say the other angles are the fact that the consumers and the consumer pressure, some things are just too tremendous to, to actually go against. When you look at the new generations, the millennials or the Gen Z generation, there's a lot of consumer pressure. They're pushing for these solutions. There's only a limited amount that lobbyists can do when you really look at it because the commercial and the consumer side is driven so extensively. And you see it with companies like Oatly that are about to IPO for, I think, uh, approximately around 10 billion, I think is the mark. You look all these other companies out there, the segment is growing tremendously. There's very little dairy can do to really slow the momentum. And they've tried. There's an article, I think 171 or Amendment 171 that's come out in EU regulation, which says basically that if you're creating an oat milk or plant-based product, you can't call it milk. You can't call it, you know, cheese. You can't call it butter. You also have to create different packaging. You might not be able to put oat milk in a carton. Like it's kind of, you know, a bit crazy, but these things are happening. However, there's also equal forces pushing against it. And so we're hoping that those forces push against it and we end up kind of overcoming it. I think the final thing to say is while some dairy companies are like this, 
not everybody's like this. You look at large dairy companies, a lot of them have started building out very large plant-based offerings. They also see this as something that's coming and they themselves don't want to get Kodak. They, they want to prepare themselves for the future. And so they're investing quite heavily. They're engaging with startups. It's surprising actually how engaging they are. There are some benefits for us combining forces with dairy and trying to build a joint opportunity out of it. So I've got two more questions, Jivan. First, I'm sure. going to ask you a cruel question, which sometimes <laughs> I ask startup founders. It's the counter history question. It's five years from now. It hasn't worked out as planned. You're looking for another gig in the bank. What <laughs> would be the reasons that it hasn't worked out? Where are the risks? Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Let's see. So I feel like the, the market appeal is there and this is going to happen. I would say the way that it potentially doesn't work out the way that we want it to is I guess a lack of focus might direct us away. It's a market where there's so many opportunities, there's so many possibilities, there's so many products we can go after and so many proteins and so many ways to enter the market, B2B angles, B2C angles. Spreading your resources too thinly and not focusing on the right, most impactful things can be what could lead a company astray or us astray. If it all goes to up in smoke, then I think that that would probably be, you know, the biggest, the biggest reason. And not consumer concern about, let's say, taste, let's say, a new experience? I really don't think so. Everything is moving in this direction. That, that is one of the strongest things and the most exciting things that you see. If, if you go on Ocado, right, I'm sure the sections are growing, growing by the week in terms of the plant-based offering, in terms of the marketing that you're seeing. And even in the wider space, you're seeing all these big restaurant groups doing so much stuff with all the plant-based space. What we're doing is just an extension of that. This is taking the plant-based space and making it even more nutritious, even you know, more exciting, giving some of those flavors that were lost when going down the, the plant-based route. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like that is too much of a concern for me right now. Not least because of people's concern over the health aspect of traditional farmed foods. Let me ask you one final question, which we always ask on Voyager's journeys. You're part of Voyager's, which is a community of people working on impact-led things, helping each other. Do you have a request from the community, an ask, and also an offer to the community? So what's your ask and your offer? Yeah, so I mean, look, it's a privilege to be part of this community. And the more I hear you know, from the other speakers and the more people I meet, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be here. I think what I will say is what we're building is hugely ambitious and it's hugely exciting. And so if this is something that resonates with you, I think join us on our mission of, of making this a reality. Whether that be on the technical side you're interested or whether you are linked with food manufacturers, we need to build an entire ecosystem to bring this to life. So I'd say reach out if this resonates with you on some sort of level and let's go and build this together. And then in terms of my offer to people, again, like uh, if you are on your own journey and mission, feel free to reach out. I'll always try and help in whatever angles I can help. If you're doing something that's impactful and exciting and going to make the world a better place, then always feel free to reach out and I'll do whatever it takes to, to try and help you on your own personal mission. And next time we have a picnic, you'll provide us with climate friendly, non-dairy cheese. Some better dairy. Excellent. Jeevan Nagaraja of Better Dairy in London, building the future of dairy substitute food. Thanks for joining Voyager's Journeys. Thank you for having me.